Could I invite you to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11? Hebrews chapter 11. Triumphs of his grace, really. Because Noah was a drunk. And Moses wasn't much better. Sometimes he came off as kind of chicken. Abraham didn't just lie, he repeatedly lied. And this paradigm of faith, the father of faith, had plenty of examples of not trusting God uh, down the line. Jacob was a schemer. Every one of the disciples was a flawed individual. And Something fascinating about the way the Bible presents its heroes is they're presented as they really were. People like you and me. Complexity, fallenness, imperfections, strengths and weaknesses. And even the most heroic individuals in the Bible are presented to us as individuals who are marked by sin and in need of a savior. And so this month, we're going to talk about triumphs of his grace. And there's a danger in a topic like this. There's a danger in in thinking and talking about Bible characters. And the danger is this, and, and I want to present it to you mostly for your own Bible study. You know, when you're reading the Bible, I want to help you do it in a way that's going to honor what the Bible actually says. And there's plenty of efforts to do character studies from the Bible that actually violate kind of the basic rules of interpretation. What I mean is this. A lot of studies of characters in the Bible don't honor what the Bible actually says about them. Instead, it's an attempt at relevancy to psychoanalyze a character in the Bible like you do in an English class uh, about some character from Middle Earth or uh, some, some uh, villain in a movie. It's a character analysis that goes beyond what is actually in the Bible because the Bible doesn't really give us a lot of physical descriptions, what they looked like, what their proclivities were. Instead, it presents us with such a seemingly bare account that sometimes when you study a character in the Bible, the temptation is to fill in the the spaces. So at my house, we've been watching this thing called The Chosen. Watch The Chosen? Some of you watch The Chosen? Maybe it's heresy to say that. Um, And there's a lot of filling in the white spaces, right? Like there's there's a lot of of implying, you know, there's some of these things happened, a lot of you know, giving the characters uh, a lot more um, gray and a lot more color and a lot more shading. And it's it's a really interesting attempt. And and I, you know, it's it's not in the Bible. I'm I'm okay with it. Um, It's better than watching Breaking Bad. So it's an example, though. Like, you get a Bible character and you, you fill them out a little bit more. And there's another danger and tendency that happens when people do Bible character studies, and it's, it's just trying to directly correlate their lives to ours without really carefully thinking about who they were and when they lived. Some people call it the killer bees, like bee like Noah, bee like Abraham, bee like David. And you could see why that would fall short so quickly, right? I mean, bee like David, except that one time. So... You want to be careful. So, so the question is, what, what do you do? You know, is there no value in studying characters in the Bible, especially characters that are, are mentioned repeatedly throughout the Bible? And I think there is value there. And the key to understanding them is to look at them in their context. Look at what the Bible emphasizes about them. Rather than trying to isolate them out of the world in which they occur, To understand King Josiah, you have to understand the days in which King Josiah lived. If you want to understand King David, well, that's a whole lot of material because King David is one of the most important figures in the entire Old Testament, even reaching into the New. And so there's a lot of material that you have to cover. 
And so when you're thinking about how to think about a character in the Bible, whether you're studying this on your own or you're listening to somebody talk about their favorite Bible hero or uh, discuss a Bible villain or, or something like that, you want to make sure that you're really listening to the scripture because this book doesn't present them like an encyclopedia of famous people. Instead, it presents them in their context, in history, in real life. And then when they're mentioned, things are emphasized about them that God has emphasized in this book that he inspired. So that's my kind of introduction to remind you that you will not find any perfect characters in this book save one, the Lord Jesus Christ. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't study them or even seek to emulate them in particular ways. 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. And so we will find things in these characters that are worthy of emulation, but we need to be careful to honor what the Bible emphasizes, to look at what the scripture is saying. And to give you an example of how to do this uh, for your own personal study and the way that we'll do this this month, I want to look at one particular Bible character that isn't mentioned uh, lots and lots, but is an important character in the drama of redemption. And her name is Rahab. Rahab. You, if you were raised in the church, uh, you know who Rahab is. Uh, you've, you've read about Rahab. Maybe they had her on a flannel graph in Sunday school. I think I'm the only person old enough to actually have flannel graph. Flannel, I think, is not ecologically sensitive anymore. They don't use it. So you had digital flannel graph, whatever that is. Do you even know what a flannel graph is? Raise your hand if you know what a flannel graph is. Yeah, I'm a thousand. And so are you guys. So there's like a patch of really ancient people that were homeschooled by their grandparents or something. So <laughs> flannel graph was this stuff. It was, I think, made of felt or some material like that. And it was like a cartoon Bible characters and you'd stick them up there and kind of tell the story. You know what I'm talking about? That's what it was. Rahab would have been an inappropriate flannel graph. She was a prostitute, and she wasn't a Jew. She was a Canaanite or an Amorite harlot. And throughout the scripture, that's how she's identified. But to understand what we could learn from a life like hers is, I think, an experiment in what I'm talking about. How do you study the Bible on the Bible's terms instead of just what you want us to say? Because it's really easy to say Rahab was a shady lady. And God saves shady ladies and shady dudes. See how that's true? But that's not, it is, it's true. He does, he saves shady ladies and he shaves shady dudes. And some dude was like, amen. So here's the thing. Is that the point of why Rahab's in the Bible? I'm gonna argue no. Though it's true that God still saves people who are undeserving, that God and, and sent his son to save sinners that's not the emphasis of why Rahab is in this passage. That's not why she's shown to us in the, the drama of redemption. Uh, the more popular way to think about Rahab is uh, through a literary device involving the scarlet thread. Remember the scarlet thread? If there was flannel graph, there'd be a, a, a scarlet rope coming down the wall of Jericho. We'll see it when we look at uh, the book of Joshua and, and see her story in its context. But usually a Sunday school teacher or a preacher will say that scarlet thread, there's a reason it was scarlet because the blood of Christ was scarlet too. And that sounds pretty cool, right? Like it's like literary. It's scarlet and so is the thread and so is hemoglobin. Science majors, don't mess with me. I know it's blue until the, I don't know anything about it. So... <laughs> The point is, is that that's not how you study the Bible either. The scarlet thread, as I'll show you in a minute, was probably a sign of the red light district in Canaanite society. It was a way that harlots would mark their business. So that's certainly not trying to show you a direct line to the cross. Now, again, is it something that's true? The, the cross is the center of God's redemptive plan, certainly but that's not the emphasis of Rahab. So how do we figure it out? Well, the way we figure it out is by looking at where Rahab is in the Bible and how she's mentioned. And the first place we need to start, I think, is with the answer to our question. And even by reading you the answer, 
I think there's some required context that the original audience had that I'll provide for you in a moment. But let's start in Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 is that famous hall of faith. Hall of faith. It's, it's that chronicling through history of all those who trusted God being highlighted and featured throughout chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is a theological document, an early Christian sermon that had one intended purpose. It was trying to urge these Christians who were persecuted and under the threat of going to jail and having their, their possessions uh, taken away from them, it was to urge them to continue to follow Jesus, to not return to the former manner of life. For most of them, that was Judaism that they weren't to return to the temple. They were to stay following Jesus in the church. That was, that's the background of the epistle to the Hebrews. When you get all the way to chapter 11, you've had 10 chapters of theology, of Christocentric theology, talking about how Jesus is superior to everything in the old system, superior to Moses, superior to the law, that worship of Christ is superior to temple worship. All that argument has happened so far. And now the centrality of faith is on display in Hebrews chapter 11. It opens with those famous words, uh, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. And this is what the ancient ones were commended for. And with those words, it launches into an example of faith that runs throughout God's story. It starts with Abel and then to Enoch and Noah and Abraham and then Sarah by association. And then, uh, of course, Isaac and Jacob and Moses and on and on. And then we get to the text I want you to see tonight which is starting in verse 29 for context, all the way through 31. This is the end of this descriptive list of those who lived by faith, starting in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 29. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land. But when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the people had marched around them for seven days. And by faith, The prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. That's the starting point. If you're going to understand why Rahab is featured so prominently in the Bible, we start at a place where Rahab is explained to us and her faith is highlighted here. And so there is something commendable about Rahab's faith. But what differentiates her from everyone else on this list? You see, every single person is described for a different reason and a different facet or aspect of their faith is being highlighted. Abel's faith is uh, the first, the premier faith, because he was the son of Adam and Eve. Enoch's faith was a peculiar faith because he was a faith that worshiped God and walked with God and then was translated straight to heaven. Noah's faith was a faith that is featured as a working faith because he obeys God and builds an ark to save his family. Abraham's faith is a trusting kind of faith that obeys all along the way. And so in Abraham's case in Hebrews 11, the obedience of faith is featured. But what of Rahab's faith? Well, to really understand if we're going to make Rahab the object of our attention tonight and understand what it is that sets her apart and makes her an exemplar of faith, we look at this text more carefully in verse 31, and it will take us back to the story. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. That's the testimony of Rahab's faith. And to understand it, we need the information that these early Christians had. Most of them were Jewish. They were raised uh, reading the Bible uh, as little kids. They understood uh, the Torah. They understood the Old Testament. And the story of Joshua was one that every Hebrew boy and girl knew. And so let's go back to the book of Joshua and quickly investigate so that we might understand what it is that's commendable about Rahab's faith. Go with me to Joshua chapter two. Joshua chapter two. Joshua's at the, uh, it's like the sixth book of your Bible. Uh, if you're, you're looking for it, 
Joshua judges Ruth. Before that is the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. And so you'll find Joshua right after the book of Deuteronomy. Look at the first page of the book of Joshua. If you look right where it says the book of Joshua, maybe the page before that, or if you have a MacArthur Study Bible, 17 pages before that, you'll find the end of the book of Joshua. I'm sorry, the end of the book of Deuteronomy. The end of the book of Deuteronomy tells us that it was time for Moses to die. Poignantly in verse Five of chapter 34, so Moses, the servant of Yahweh, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley of the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no man knows his burial place to this day. Although Moses was 120 years when he died, his eye was not dim, nor was his vigor abated. That's the exact diet plan I'm on, the Moses diet. And then verse 10, since then no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, who Yahweh knew face to face. I mean, there's no more towering figure in the Old Testament than Moses. The Jews revered Moses, and you can hear from his burial account that Moses was a big deal. And so when the book of Joshua opens, the wilderness generation that Moses led out of Egypt, you remember Prince of Egypt, you saw the cartoon. Moses led them out of Egypt to the edge of the promised land. They sent in 12 spies. The spies came back with a mixed report. The people said, we're scared. Their giants were grasshoppers, were out. God judged them for their unbelief, featured in the book of Hebrews, actually, in chapter three, apistos, unbelief, unfaith. And because they were the unbelieving generation, they wandered around in the wilderness, bouncing around like the gate on the decibel meter all throughout the wilderness for 40 years without entering the promised land. Even Moses himself was barred and only two would enter, Caleb and Joshua. Those two spies who gave the favorable report were the ones who would enter into the promised land with the new generation. That's the intro to the book of Joshua. This is what it's like. A leader, Joshua, not a young leader, but younger than Moses, is taking over for Moses. This is like taking over for Bill Gates at Microsoft. This is like being the president after Abraham Lincoln. This is like that poor sucker who will follow John MacArthur. This is, this is a problem. To be Joshua is to have the worst job in the world. I mean, the towering figure of Moses, the one who brought the tablets of the law to the people of God, who shepherded them through the wilderness for those 40 years, who went toe-to-toe with Pharaoh, and now we have this guy, the guy who nobody believed when he came and told them a good report about the land. He's going to be their leader. That guy, Yeshua, Joshua, in Hebrew, Yeshua. And so it makes sense that the the book of Joshua opens in chapter one by God himself commissioning and charging Yeshua to do this job. Look at verse two. Moses, my servant is dead. Now therefore arise, cross the Jordan, you and all this people to the land which I'm giving them to the sons of Israel. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I've given it to you, just as I spoke to Moses. And he goes on to show him all the territory that will be theirs, the same territory that they should have had 40 years before, but they, they rejected it because of their unbelief. God rejected them. Verse six, God fortifies Yeshua by saying, be strong and courageous for you shall give this people possession of the land, which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law, which Moses, my servant commanded you. Do not turn from the right or to the left so that you may have success wherever you go. And God, again, equips him by telling him in verse eight, The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that all that's written in it you would know and that you make your way prosperous and then you'll have success. Have I not commanded you be strong and courageous? Do not tremble or be dismayed for Yahweh your God is with you wherever you go. Joshua was afraid because if somebody is not afraid, you don't have to tell them multiple times, do not be afraid. Stop trembling. 
And it was right that Joshua was scared because the task was massive. They were entering into a land that had been occupied since Genesis chapter 15, hundreds of years at this point, with pagan soldiers, fortified cities that had dug their way in and had an extra 40 years to prepare because these Bedouin Aperu Hebrew people had come to their land one generation before and put their toes on the edge of the Jordan River and acted like they were going to invade, even sending spies in and then bolted. And they'd heard about these Hebrew people and they were prepared to fight. And so now this generation had done some skirmishes kind of on the other side of the Jordan River. That's called the book of Deuteronomy. They heard some sermons from Moses, also the book of Deuteronomy. And then Moses climbs up Mount Nebo and dies. Joshua gets commissioned by God to fulfill all the promises that God had given to Israel. And Joshua assumes command. That's what happens in chapter one. He is the one who's going to enter into this leadership position. Joshua was the Moses 2.0. He was the one who was going to be the one to grab on to all these promises from God. Joshua was a big deal. And so he doesn't make the mistakes that were made before. Instead, he sends in uh, just a, a few spies, two actually. Chapter two, verse one, Joshua, the son of Nun. That doesn't mean he didn't have parents. It's, it's a letter in Hebrew. Uh, sent two men as spies secretly from Shittim saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came into the house of a harlot whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And here's where the Rahab story starts. It starts with all the background though of a bad spy mission a generation before that went so poorly that it caused all of God's people to be kicked out into the wilderness for an entire generation to die. The new generation sends only two spies in and in their recon mission, and I love the way the text describes this. It's got all the the drama and intensity of like a spy movie or of a war movie. They're, They're moving into enemy territory and the first city they'd have to conquer, the gateway to get into Canaan, the promised land, is this massive fortified city called Jericho. And so looking Middle Eastern as they did. They rolled into town in disguise, pretending to be Amorites or Canaanites, and they went to the only place where no one asks questions, a whorehouse. They go to a a shady prostitute's lodging place to stay where nobody asks questions. But there's eyes everywhere. And in verse two, it was told the king of Jericho saying, behold, men from the sons of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab saying, bring out the men who've come to you. They've entered your house for they have come to search out the land. And it seems like the whole deal is shot. Two spies will definitely be caught. They will be killed and the troops will be alerted about the presence of the Hebrew people. But, verse 4, the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And it came about when it was time to shut the gate at dark that the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them to the roof and hidden them in the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued them on the road to the Jordan to the fords. And as soon as those who were pursuing them had gone out, they shut the gate. The drama of this text is so intense. You can hear the gates of this city crashing closed. Now these men, narrowly escaping discovery, protected only by the lie of a pagan prostitute, are trapped in the city. Everyone is looking for them. In fact, a a group of soldiers, a battalion or whatever has gone out of the city, chasing them down. And here they are hiding on the roof of the brothel, trying to stay still and wondering what kind of alliance they've gotten themselves into. Now, most people get distracted at this point of the story and want to talk about Rahab's lie. What are the ethical implications of Rahab's lie? 
And, you know, they, so they get into it all right here. You know, can a, a follower of God lie? Can, you know, in an extreme situation, um, you know, to your parents in high school, for example. <laughs> or if you're a spy and you work for the government, if you're a Christian spy, you have to go, I'm a spy. <laughs> undercover cops. Can you be a Christian undercover cop? I love the Lord. I'm just a little bit of a liar. Can you play basketball? Can you do a head fake? <laughs> Brother, I, I just need to apologize for that. Chess. Do you need to announce your moves? Three in advance. I'm going to take your rook if you could put that there. I mean, is that what an honest Christian would do? So, so the ethical dilemmas, you know, are, are many. And then it always goes back, as everything does, to Hitler. You know, it, it does. All, all ethical dilemmas by freshman philosophers go back to Hitler. And they, they say, you know, if the Nazis are on your, at your doorstep and they're knocking and they say, you have Jews in this house? And you say... You know, no, I don't have any Jews. There's tons of Jews under your table, and you, you say there's no Jews. And, and so different Christians have answered that differently in ethical dilemmas. You can read lots of textbooks about it. I'm going to answer it for you right now. It's not the point of this story. It's not. It's not the emphasis of this text. The Bible, in any place Rahab is mentioned, here, Hebrews 11, in the book of James and the end of the book of Ruth, there is nowhere where her lie is condemned or commended. Now, that doesn't fix it, but I'm just showing you that to tell you that's not the emphasis of what you're supposed to be taking out of this. So if you are deeply interested in Christian ethics in war, this is not the sermon for you. You don't have to leave. I'm just telling you we're not going there. What you need is you need to focus on the focus of the text. We have one tiny moment of Rahab's dishonesty, but there's something else that's being emphasized here. Now, let's get back to the story. The gates just slam shut, and these guys are trapped inside. Verse 8, now before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, now here is the part of the story you're supposed to listen to. You're supposed to know there is something being emphasized here. One, because it's by far a lot more material than Rahab's mere lie. There's something Rahab is about to say that's true. And I want you to focus on Rahab's truth. Not only that, I want you to see a word that's being repeated by Rahab that's of great significance. Start again in verse nine. She says to the spies, I Know that Yahweh has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Shehong and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And when we heard it, our hearts melted and no courage remained in any man no longer because of you. For Yahweh, your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now, therefore, please swear to me by Yahweh, since I have dealt kindly with you, that you also will deal kindly with my father's household and give me a pledge of truth and spare my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters and all who belong to them and deliver all our lives from death. So the men said to her, our life for yours, if you do not tell this business of ours, and it shall come about that when Yahweh gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Rahab's testimony is very clearly focused on Yahweh. Lord, in your Bible, all capitals letters, this pagan prostitute, an Amorite, the very enemy of God's people, the one who have been squatting on the land that God promised to his people for all these centuries, the worst among them morally knows lots about who God is. She knows his name and she's heard of him. There's that emphasis on, we heard, we heard of you. 
and what she's come to know about Yahweh in verse 9. This is a woman who has come to a knowledge of Yahweh, an understanding of who he is. And something that we'll see when we get to the book of Hebrews is there's something showing here, something telling here about the faith of Rahab. So if all your emphasis is on you know, her flawed moral character because she's a shady lady, or if you're about to get distracted by a red rope hanging out the window, or if you're going to get caught up in some Feinbergian ethical dilemma, you're missing the point of the gigantic speech that this harlot just gave that is in the eloquent language of a fearer of Yahweh. This is incredible. She knows who's going to win this battle. And so she springs to action, verse 15. She lets them down through a rope through the window because her house was on the city wall. That's foreshadowing. She was living on this wall. She said to them, go to the hill country, stay for three days until the, the heat dies down. They repeat the oath to her and then they tell her to make a sign with that cord of scarlet in the window which you let us down. So that way they can see which apartment is her brothel, her living quarters right there. And that's where you need to keep your family and we will covenant to keep them safe. And so they take off, they go hide. Then chapter three, they come back and and give the report. It's in verse 24 actually of chapter two. Surely Yahweh has given all the land into our hands. All the inhabitants of the land moreover have melted away before us. Listen to the power of Yahweh of uh, Rahab's confession of faith. I mean, it, it had such an impact. The testimony of a pagan woman about the power of Israel's God was so fortifying to these two spies that they go back and they preach Rahab's message to their countrymen. I mean, Israelites should know their God is mighty and strong and able to keep all his promises. But it was this word from the harlot Rahab about how powerful and fearsome and promise-keeping this Yahweh is that was worth taking back as proof that this was their time. And so it's time to make a covenant. There's a surgical procedure, uh, circumcision. We won't get into all of that, but that needs to happen to this generation. And it happens. They pile up some memorial stones in chapter four for the Jordan River. Uh, I'm sorry, the, the surgeries in chapter five. And then we get to chapter six and we find the end of the Rahab story, sort of. Now Jericho was tightly shut and we don't need to read this whole thing. You know what happens. This is the, this is the Sunday school song and the walls of Jericho come a-tumbling down. You guys, if I had stickers, I'd give you a sticker. Good job. So the thing worth noting here is what happens at the very end of chapter 5. Verse 13, now it came when Joshua was by Jericho. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing opposite him with him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? Joshua's already been fortified and strengthened, hasn't he? I mean, he's trembling in chapter one, but now he sees some dude with a sword in the dark outside of Jericho, and Joshua confronts him with, you mad, bro? And, and this moment of conflict is here. But what's actually happening is Joshua is toe-to-toe with the Lord of hosts, the captain of the host of Yahweh, uh, likely a manifestation of God's presence physically in a pre-incarnate way. Joshua falls down on his face to the earth, bows down, says to him, what has my Lord to say to his servant? As the captain of Yahweh's host said to Joshua, remove your sandals from your feet for the place where you're standing is holy. And Joshua did so. He received his instructions for this battle from God himself. This, the, this theophany, this appearance of God before Joshua to give him explicit instructions that only God could come up with. I mean, crazy talk, carry trumpets, priests in the middle, uh, the people on both sides, and then walk around the, the walls of Jericho seven days. That's a good way to get killed by people with arrows and rocks and 
who knows what other kind of hot stuff they'll throw over the wall. But they go through with this plan because it's exactly the plan that God gave them and the Ark of the Covenant's involved. The, the whole thing is there. On the seventh day, they shout. And like you already said, the walls come a. Uh, yeah, it's a uh, tumbling down. That's right. And so what's the outcome? Verse 15. The priests, uh, the, they manner seven times on the day. They marched around the city seven times, 16. It came about at the seventh time when the priests blew the trumpets. Joshua said to the people, shout for Yahweh has given you the city and the city shall be under the ban. That's the Hebrew word harem, more on that in a second. It, and all that is in it belongs to Yahweh. Only Rahab the harlot and all who are with her in the house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent but as for you, keep yourselves from the things under the ban, lest you covet them and take some of the things under the ban so that you would make the camp of Israel accursed and bring trouble on it. And then he says to take all the gold and silver, the bronze, the valuables, and put them uh, into the Lord's reserves. So God gets all the, the material spoils and the people are supposed to completely annihilate all the inhabitants of the city. Verse 21, that's uh, in the Bible, you've got to deal with it. Uh, everything in the city, young men and women, young and old, ox, sheep, and donkey, and the edge of the sword. It's the word harem. It's to ban or to devote. Uh, it's to destroy completely. It's used in that way to speak of something devoted to the Lord, something completely uh, put under God's judgment, and that is what's happening to the Canaanite people. Not just this city, but every city that the people will encounter, they are supposed to treat it this way. They're not supposed to make themselves rich. They're not supposed to get the spoil. They're supposed to take those things and devote them to the Lord, and they're supposed to crush all their enemies, have them completely out of the land. If you have a problem with this, um, that's that's okay. I think you could you could find some answers in various places. I'll give you this. If you have a big problem with God killing people, <sighs> drive by a graveyard. And I'm not trying to be crass, but everybody dies. Everybody dies. And every death is an example of God's just judgment. No one escapes it. And sometimes this retribution comes at the hands of an invading army, and sometimes it comes because your cells go weird on you, and sometimes it comes because you enjoy cheeseburgers a little bit too much, but you are going to die. And when you do, you will face God in judgment, just like every Canaanite man, woman, and child. Now, to say that they didn't deserve it would be to misunderstand Genesis 15, the sins of the Amorites, the sins of the Canaanites had risen up to a particular level of God's notice and were not at the level of his judgment yet, Genesis 15. Now they're at the level of God's judgment. And this is true not only in the people of Canaan, but this is true in every person's life. A time will come when the mercy of God is exhausted, if you have yet to give your life to Christ, a day is coming when you will die. And if you face God in judgment apart from the mercy of Jesus, you have no hope. You will be devoted to destruction eternally. It's a, a reminder and a warning that God is a holy judge. I'm not telling you that because I'm trying to be crass or harsh but friend, I'm telling you that because that's what the Bible says. The Bible tells us that every one of us deserves the just and righteous judgment of a holy God. And the only way to escape that judgment is to be saved by that same God who is a God not only of wrath, but of mercy and love and truth. So that's the story. Now, what happens to Rahab? Verse 22, I love that Joshua announced it to the army to, to spare them, keeping that covenant promise. Verse 24, go into the harlot's house and bring the woman and all she has out here as you've sworn to her. So the young men who were spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and her brothers and all she had. And they brought, her all, uh, they brought out all her relatives and placed them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire, all that was in it, only the silver and gold and articles of bronze they put into the treasury of the house of Yahweh. However, Rahab the harlot, her father's household and all she had, Joshua spoke 
spared, and she has lived in the midst of Israel to this day, for she hid the messengers when Joshua sent, when, whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. So that is the story of Rahab, the Amorite prostitute. Go back to Hebrews 11. Why is she featured here? And was it a, what is it about her story that warrants her faith worth noticing? That makes her a believer, that's what faith is, a believer worth noticing? And what is it about her faith in particular that's featured in Hebrews 11 that's worth emulating? Because I think this will give us the answer to not only what Hebrews 11 thinks is most significant about the life and testimony of Rahab, though I'm sure you could pull several lessons from her life, I think this is also the point of what's happening to her in the book of Joshua. And it's not that God saves shady ladies. And it's not even the idea of Gentile inclusion, like the uh, international flavor of salvation, God saves Gentiles. Certainly a biblical truth, definitely not, in my understanding, the point of the Rahab story. Think back to what we heard. We heard Rahab's, not lie, but truth. We heard her testimony, and we heard her claim allegiance to Yahweh. We saw her faith spring to action, and that's what the faith in Hebrews 11 always does. Faith responds to the revelation of God. It's what it does in the stories that are featured in Hebrews 11. It's what it does today. Nobody comes to faith out of nowhere. Faith is not ex nihilo. Faith comes from God's provocation. In other words, God shows himself to you through his word, through a message about Christ, through a testimony of God's salvation, and you respond to that in faith. That's where faith comes from. Faith is action provoked by revelation. And so in the case of Rahab, she heard about God. Where would she have heard about God? Well, I certainly hope it wasn't from Hebrews wandering into the, the whorehouse in Jericho. That was not, they, were, they didn't even live in that area. It would have been from Egyptians. It would have been from other Canaanites. It would have been from other kind of Jebusites and all kinds of different pagan people groups that inhabited the land of Canaan who would go into an Amorite prostitute brothel and would talk about this God Yahweh and the things that he had done, the people who they had heard about, the great deliverance from this mighty superpower of Egypt. And that message spread by unbelieving pagans fell on the ears of one particular prostitute and she believed it. She believed it and she feared the God that they were describing. And she knew that her people didn't have a chance. And so that's where her truth and her testimony came from. And that's why Joshua and God, through Joshua, rescued her family and preserved her house and put them outside the camp. She couldn't join up Israel right away. She was ritually unclean. And so these people had to be associated with Israel, but placed outside the Israel because she was a foreigner and a, a prostitute. She went outside the camp. So what's happening in this passage? Well, I think the author of Hebrews loves the story of Rahab. And I think the reason he places her here in this list is the reason you need to have her as an example of stunning faith. Follow me this list really quick. Remember, it's chronological. By faith, Abel. By faith, Enoch. By faith, Noah. It, it makes sense that the next person would be by faith, Abraham. You know, the world got wiped out, and Noah was all that's left, and then the next big story is Abraham. After Abraham, it would be Abraham's son, Isaac. And sure it is, verse 20, by faith, Isaac. And then it would be featuring Jacob, his son, verse 21. And then Joseph, verse 22. And all that, that God did through Joseph in Egypt. And now the story of, of redemption is in Egypt. And so who led the people out of Egypt? 
You got it, good. You're, you're tracking Moses, verse 23. By faith, Moses. And then the story of Moses and how he chose the pleasures of of Christ to be of greater value than the pleasures of sin, that he forsook the riches of Egypt and he followed by faith. Uh, God entrusted him. And then it features the faith of the people who walked through the Red Sea. It was their final act of faith. By faith, the people passed through. The Red Sea is on dry land, but the Egyptians tried to do so and they were drowned. That's the Exodus. That's That's the greatest example of God's salvation in the Old Testament. It's what half the Psalms are singing about. God saving his people from slavery in Egypt and bringing them towards the promised land. So it's moving chronologically through the story of God working in his people in the Old Testament. And then it says that the people passed through the Red Sea. That's the wilderness generation. The other time they're mentioned is in chapter three of Hebrews, where it says they did not believe After this initial act of faith, they didn't trust God. They denied the spies report and they complained in the wilderness and God killed every single one of them. And so now, verse 30, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the people had marched around them for seven days. We featured Moses and we featured the people of God, the generation that will enter the land. So who should be on this list next? I mean, if we're trying to roll with a list of descriptors that deserve being featured and we're going Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and the people who entered the land, who is the champion who led them into the land? Joshua. The next name on the list in every ear of every person who has taught the Bible, every young Hebrew child knew that the next name on the list was Yeshua, was Joshua. That's the glaring omission here. And it doesn't have to do with Joshua lacking faith. There's lots of people who aren't on the list, but this is the last name on the list that receives a description. There's a staccato listing of names that just get rattled off a few verses from now, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, but none of them are described like these initial characters are described. The person who is featured at the final spot on this list is in a place of prominence, a place of significance. And this wise preacher wants his audience who's on the brink of recapitulation, who's thinking about going back to their former manner of life, who's thinking about returning to Judaism, returning to temple worship, following Christ is too expensive. The world hates Christians. This is too hard. I don't know if I can keep going is what they're all saying. And so instead of telling them that the champion who led them in the Exodus, Joshua, is a stellar example of faith, he wants them to remember the name of a Canaanite prostitute who believed God and who gave her truth, which was a testimony of allegiance to Yahweh for one reason. It is not by faith Isaac, Moses, and then Joshua. It's by faith Isaac and Moses and Rahab. Rahab is the crowning achievement of this list, except for chapter 12, verses one through three, where Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. Rahab is at the very top uh, of this list, the culminating moment, the crescendo of this list. And why is it Rahab? What does it matter for your faith and your perseverance if you're hearing this sermon on Hebrews 11? The answer's in verse 31. By faith, the prostitute Rahab because she welcomed the spies, was not destroyed. She was not destroyed with those who were disobedient. What is the hallmark of Rahab's faith? It's not about her lie. It's about her truth and what it accomplished. You see, Rahab believed Yahweh. And because of that belief, she was not destroyed. Do you see the implied warning for all of us? If the epistle to Hebrews is is a letter about continuing in your faith, about keeping on believing, about pressing on to the prize, of not drifting away, of not being like that wilderness generation who disbelieved, 
the message of the faith of Rahab is that faith saves from destruction. Rahab's life and testimony, her allegiance to Yahweh, saved her from being destroyed, from being killed, from being wiped out. And that's the message to all of us at the very start of this series about triumphs of God's grace. The reason you must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ is because that mercy comes on the back of a very genuine and valid threat. Rahab didn't stand a chance and she knew it. And so she switched teams. She didn't care that the king of Jericho was sending the cops. Lying to the Jericho police force was the least of Rahab's problems. Rahab knew that that city was going to be destroyed, that God had promised it to his people. And so the only way in her Canaanite harlot logic, which is crystal clear, was to save herself and save her family is to join Yahweh's people. And God sends two spies to hide in her house. And so she covers for him. And then she gives him a speech, a speech so good that they go back and give it to the commanding officers. A city is ours. And then when Rahab is rescued providentially, that part of the wall was preserved. I mean, Joshua didn't make the wall fall. God did. And somehow her little apartment was preserved. And then the they go up and they lead her out and her family. And, and after the battle's over, they have to live outside the camp. And I think the author of Hebrews is thinking about that as well, outside the camp. If you flip forward a page to chapter 13, it's the same kind of language that the author of Hebrews uses to describe where Jesus went and where all of us will go if we associate with him. You see, in Hebrews chapter 13, Jesus is the one who is led outside of the camp. He is the one who is forsaken by God's people and rejected. He is the one who is not deemed acceptable. He's put outside the camp, and the author of Hebrews is encouraging all who would follow him to join him there. Verse 11 of chapter 13. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. You see, the readers of this epistle, the hearers of this ancient sermon, and you and I have something in common with Rahab. We don't belong in God's family, not by nature and not by right. We don't belong with the people of God. We are outsiders and we are foreigners and we are aliens. We deserve harem, total destruction. But because Jesus suffered outside the camp, things have been reversed. What before was considered unclean is now clean. And what before was considered unclean is now clean because a Messiah dying on the cross was unacceptable to the Jewish people. A dead savior was not something that computed for them. And so the author of Hebrews is telling them, let's join Jesus outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore, for here we do not have an enduring city. How Rahab is that? Jericho? Do you really care what Jericho thinks of you? I mean, dear Christian, you are living in a world that is increasingly hostile to everything you believe. The exclusivity, the exclusivity, whether you can pronounce it or not, the exclusivity of Christ. 
What a heretical message to our culture. Christian sexual ethics. I mean, wildly unacceptable. June's over, it's still unacceptable. I mean, everything you believe is under assault. And I wonder if you're okay with that. Because if you have a Rahab mentality, Rahab who heard about God and feared his destruction, it didn't bother Rahab that the cops were knocking on her door. She wasn't worried about King of Jericho cracking down on her. She had a greater concern. The city she lived in was not her city very much longer. But there was a city to come that she was very interested in associating with. That needs to be our mentality by faith. We need to pursue the unseen city. We need to follow Jesus outside of the camp because what we have here is not going to last. This world, friend, this world is not our home. And if you are not a Christian here tonight, we are so glad you're here. You are not a weirdo or an alien or an enemy to us because we were just like you. We followed after the lusts of our hearts and we didn't worship Jesus like we should have until someone told us about the mercy of God and the cross of Jesus, his resurrection from the grave that could give us hope and forgiveness and eternal life. And so we, like Rahab said, yeah, maybe I used to be a shady dude or a shady lady, but all I care about now is not the city I live in. I wanna live in the city to come. I wanna follow after Jesus and I wanna bear the disgrace he bore. Do you see how this helps you with perseverance? But that's not it. There's something else. Because Rahab didn't just get not destroyed. She was outside the camp until she wasn't. You see, Rahab and likely her family became proselytes, Gentile converts to Judaism. They would have had to go through it all to do that, observe the law, follow all the rules of Judaism, but it was by faith that she became a covenant person. And I love this. Go to the book of Ruth. Joshua judges Ruth. The very end of the book of Ruth. It's a great romance story if you've never read it. She's outside the city at first. And then she goes into the camp and becomes a, a proselyte, a convert. And there's someone by the name of Salmon. He's from the family of Nashon. He's listed in Numbers 7. And he's featured here at the end of the book of Ruth, verse 18. Now these are the generations of Perez. To Perez was born Hezron. And to Hezron was born Ram, and to Ram, Abinadab, and to Abinadab was born Nashon, there he is, and to Nashon, Salmon, and to Salmon was born Boaz, and to Boaz, Obed, and to Obed was born Jesse, and to Jesse, David. You see, Nashon in the family of Nashon, his son Salmon married, married Rahab. You see, she was a Jewish girl now, kinda. And they got married. And they didn't just get married, they had a baby. And their baby was named Boaz. And Boaz is the best. Boaz met a girl in a field he owned, and she was socially unacceptable. A Midianite. Another one of those pagan people. Only a man of great character like Boaz would love a woman of faith like Ruth because he saw in her 
a foreign woman, and he remembered who his mother was. And from this family line would come Obed, and from Obed would come Jesse, and from Jesse would come David, and David would be the king. And David, from the very line of David, and from this same line full of Amorite prostitutes and Moabitess widows, would come the Messiah. That's why the faith of Rahab matters. It gets you out from under destruction and it brings you into God's family forever. That's the faith of Rahab. And I hope it's your faith too. Father, thank you for your word. And these characters so colorful and and beautiful presented to us in your word. Help us to focus on the God who saves from destruction, the God who rescues. And he doesn't do it because we are worthy. He does it because he is gracious, because you are good, because you are kind. So show us, O God, how you could turn an Amorite prostitute into part of the genealogy of Christ. And likewise, transform many here tonight from lives of sin to trophies of grace who trust in Jesus to flee destruction and stand with Jesus and to receive ultimate reward. We ask this in the matchless name of Christ. Amen.